0: The GBC Sermon podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website. Here,
1: as we just heard, uh, Mark is going to come now and give us a first person narrative. So, if you were here two weeks ago or you've listened to the podcast, uh, you would have some idea of what that's involved, or if you've been around for a while, he's done this before. Uh, but let me just explain it's a little bit different. Um, we, today, we're looking at the book of Ruth, and uh, Mark is going to come out in character, not as Ruth. Uh, But as Boaz, if you know the story, that'll give you a little bit of an inkling where he might be coming from. Uh, So if you'd like to follow along, you can look up the book of Ruth and follow along. Kids, that might be something that you could do, uh, and all of us. So it's a little bit different, the first-person narrative, rather than explaining what the Bible is teaching us we will be hearing it from a first-person perspective. And it's good often to dive into a story in the Bible and think, what if I was that character? What is that character feeling and seeing? And how is God working in this story from the eyes of that character? So that's what we're going to hear today from Mark.
2: Courage is a little bit contagious, isn't it? You sow a courageous act and you reap a courageous act. And I should know, not because I'm particularly courageous myself, but because I have been inspired by the courage of another. It all began about a year ago, uh, just before the barley harvest, when Naomi returned to the gates of Bethlehem and set the town abuzz. After more than 10 years, the prodigal daughter had returned. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite the homecoming that she had hoped, not because of the welcome. We were delighted to see her again, but because of the circumstances in which she returned. I had uh, grown up with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. I'm one of his relatives, although in a small town like Bethlehem, that's not that surprising. Everyone's related to everyone else. But I was their relative, and I remember watching when they got married. I was a little bit older than both of them. They settled on their ancestral land and soon had two young boys, Malon and Kilion, and life seemed pleasant and full for them, as it was for many of us in Bethlehem. And then came The famine. The worst in living memory. No one in Bethlehem escaped unscathed from that famine, but for some it was much worse than for others. And for Elimelech and Naomi, several failed harvests forced them into the sale of their ancestral land, which of course was a dire circumstance because the money that they had received for the land they could only use to kind of maintain their life and therefore never ever be in a position to repurchase that land. Things were grim for them, but we were scandalized, absolutely scandalized, when they turned their back on family, clan, and tribe and emigrated to Moab, our ancestral enemies. The people who, when the Lord had brought us up out of Egypt, though we had neither harassed nor provoked them, hired Balaam, a sorcerer, to curse us. Now thankfully the Lord had reversed the curse and made it a blessing, but that wasn't all the Moabites had done. Some of their women had seduced our men into sexual immorality and idolatry in the worship of their gods, including Chemosh, to whom they sacrificed their children. And on top of all of that, Eglon the fat had oppressed us for 18 long years before the Lord had raised up a deliverer for us. Of all the places for a son of Bethlehem to go, Moab. Well, we heard nothing of the family for the better part of 10 years, and the famine dragged on. But finally, the Lord came to our rescue. He heard our cries. The rains returned, and the fields were once again white to the harvest, and there was joy in Bethlehem. And Naomi, living in Moab, heard of the Lord's goodness to us and decided to return. And so she had but in reduced circumstances. Limelech, my relative and her husband, had died in Moab, a long way from the bones of his ancestors. His two sons, who had married Moabite women, had also died young and without children. Naomi had returned with only one companion. By her own description, her life was now bitter and empty, apart from... daughter-in-law, the Moabites, Malon's widow, Ruth. Well in a small town it's hard to keep news like that under wraps and for the next few days the town spoke of nothing else. Rumors spread about the time that they had spent in Moab and about her daughter-in-law, especially about her daughter-in-law. And the general consensus given grudgingly was that for a Moabite, She wasn't all that bad. The story had come out that apparently when Elimelech had died in Moab, that Ruth and her sister-in-law had cared for Naomi in a very gracious and kind way. And when their husbands had likewise died, they had not returned to their father's houses, but had instead stayed and cared for Naomi. And when Naomi had decided that she would return to Bethlehem, they had determined to come with her. Along the way, Naomi had urged them to return home, eventually persuading uh, Ruth's sister-in-law to do so. But Ruth clung to her mother-in-law and took an oath in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, to never leave her side. That Naomi's people would be hers, that Naomi's God would be hers, and that not even death would part them. Where Naomi was buried, Ruth would be buried as well. This was an extraordinary act of kindness, an extraordinary act of love for her mother-in-law. But what struck me as I heard the story was actually the courage that that love required. You see, Ruth could have returned home with the blessing of her mother-in-law. She spoke very highly of her. She could have expected quite reasonably to be married again and to have children of her own and to be with her family and to stay with her people and her gods, with all that was familiar and all that was comfortable and all that was known. But by choosing to care for her mother-in-law, she chose a life of almost certain poverty. For Naomi had no land. And she did not have the means to repurchase that land. And even if she had had the land and had somehow found the seed required to sow the fields, an elderly widow and her widowed daughter-in-law would not have been sufficient to do the work. They were going to, even with the charity of the community, live on the very edge of poverty. The chances of Ruth ever being married again were slim if only for the fact that she was most likely going to be impoverished, but all the more so because she was, well, a Moabitess. And we all know what they're like, don't we? Her first marriage had ended in barrenness and death. How was she going to have any other life than an empty one? I was struck by her courage. And very soon we learned that her kindness to her mother-in-law was not yet exhausted, and neither was her courage. They had arrived, as I said, just before the barley harvest. And it was a time of rejoicing. The, uh, The fields were abundant. They were filled with grain. And there are provisions in our law that the joy of the harvest be shared with all. And so those who owned property were encouraged to allow those who were poor the widowed and the orphans and the foreigners to follow along after your harvesters and pick up what was left. Landovers, landowners were encouraged not to be, well, not to be too aggressive with how much they collected, to leave the corners of their fields uh, unharvested as well so that all might benefit from the goodness of God. You can imagine when you are poor and impoverished on the edge of society with no one to advocate for you, that your desperation can sometimes lead you to overstep the bounds of generosity. And instead of receiving what was given, to take more than was on offer, which could lead to reprimands, could lead to being shamed, and in some cases, much worse. And when people who are overstepping the mark of generosity happen to be foreign widows from Moab, things can get dangerous. But nonetheless, in order to care for her mother-in-law, Ruth took to the fields. And as it happened, she ended up in one of mine. It was about mid-morning when I first saw her, I came to check with my harvesters, and I noticed this young woman who I did not recognize, and asked my foreman who she was. He told me that she was the Moabitess who had returned from Moab with Naomi, and that she had come early, asked permission to harvest in the fields, and had worked basically the whole morning. And I could have been content with that. I was, after all, fulfilling the duty of the law to allow those who were poor and marginalized to follow after my harvesters. She would have food she and her mother-in-law would be provided for through that simple act of generosity. And I looked at her and I brought to mind one of my favorite proverbs from our scriptures, that the one who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay them for what they have done. And it occurred to me that you don't actually have to be wealthy to be kind to the poor. That this young Moabite widow had in her own way shown kindness to the poor and the Lord would repay her. And I saw an opportunity for me to participate in being part of God's reward to this young woman. And so her courage and her love inspired a small act of courage and love on my part. I made my way through my harvesters and had a conversation with this young woman, this young widow from Moab, a small risk to my reputation, you might say, not nearly on par with hers, but inspired nonetheless by her. And I essentially made her um, an honorary member of my workforce. I told her to stay with my men and to stay in the fields that they were working in and to follow them all the way through all of my property, to not go anywhere else. I invited her to drink from the water that the young men drew for the workers whenever she was thirsty. And when she asked me why it was that I was showing her kindness, why I was showing kindness to a foreigner, I told her it was quite simple, really. I had seen the kindness that she had performed for her mother-in-law, and I hoped that this small act of kindness on my behalf might actually be a down payment of the reward of the Lord under whose wings she had taken refuge. I invited her to lunch, a simple meal of bread and wine vinegar and roasted grain. Uh, She ate quickly and then uh, took the leftovers that I pressed on her and went back to work in the fields. I uh, had a quiet word with my foreman before I left. His description of her as the Moabitess who came from Moab struck me as slightly ominous. I told him that I didn't want any harm to come to Ruth and that instead they were to make sure that she was incredibly successful, even if she chose to harvest amongst the sheaves, generally kind of a no-no if you are uh, taking advantage of a landowner. And also to make sure that my harvesters had an eye out for where she was. And if she was following them, to be, well, very deliberate about not harvesting not nearly as much. Leaving a whole bunch of grain for her to pick up. And I went on my way. Well, I heard the same report from my foreman for the next several weeks of the barley harvest and into the wheat harvest. That Ruth would arrive early. She would work until sunset and go home every evening with a shawl full of grain. It's fantastic. I was pleased to think that she and her mother-in-law would have more than enough food, not only to sustain them in the short term, but also possibly to be able to sell for a few additional things. And I wasn't the only person to have noticed her diligence. Word around the town was that some of the young men had begun to notice that Moabite she might be, but she might actually be a pseudo-daughter of Israel. Her diligence, her hard work, her kindness to her mother-in-law, the fact that she feared the Lord and was kind to the poor, all led people to begin to suspect that she was a wife of noble character. And we all know the saying, a wife of noble character who can find she is worth more than rubies. And Ruth's value was going up. And I was delighted for her. To think that only a few weeks earlier, the prospect of her ever being married and settling in her own home with her own children was so remote. This was delightful. Again, I was struck by the courage that she had shown in the kindness that she had shown to the poor and the wonderful reward of the Lord. So... I was a little surprised at what happened next. Uh, the harvest had been incredibly abundant, uh, 30, 60, sometimes a hundredfold what had been sown in the first place. And when we had finally gathered all of the grain together, we threshed it, separating the wheat and the chaff and the barley and the chaff. And eventually, after several days, for the Lord had been very good to us, there was a pile of grain. And my men and I celebrated deep into the night. There was food and there was drink as we remembered and gave thanks for all that the Lord had done for us. And eventually, late in the evening, I went to the far side of the grain pile for some sleep. It was the middle of the night and something woke me up. It was very dark. I couldn't see anything nor could I hear anything but I very quickly realized that I was not alone. There was a woman lying at my feet. It was dark and I couldn't be sure, but I could feel the warmth of her against my feet. I could smell her perfume in the air. And I was a little nervous. Women don't normally show up at the threshing floor at least not to help with the threshing. And here I was, a man of some renown in my community, with an unknown woman lying at my feet in the middle of the night after I'd been celebrating into the early evening. So I asked who it was. And the response was, I am Ruth, your servant. Now I know what you're thinking. I'll be honest with you, I thought it too. Oh no. I'm at the threshing floor in the middle of the night with a Moabitess, and we all know what they're like. She very quickly, though, set my mind at ease because the next thing she said was, put the corner of your garment over me that I might take refuge under your wings for you are a kinsman redeemer. Ah, this girl. You don't know what I'm talking about. To be a kinsman redeemer and to be named as such activated twin responsibilities on my behalf. The first, as a relative of Elimelech's, was to redeem the property that he had sold. Uh, it was uh, the practice that we wanted to keep the land in the family and in the clan and in the tribe. And it was a provision within the law of Moses. Moses. The reason why it hadn't been done to this point in time for Elimelech was that there was no heir for the land. There was no one to give the land to, which is where the second provision came out, the second responsibility of a near relative. For there was within our law another opportunity, not just to redeem the land, but to redeem the family line where a near relative such as myself could take a widow as his wife and seek to have a child with her. And if the Lord blessed us with a child, that child would not be the son or daughter of the kinsman, but the legal heir of the one whose land had been redeemed. Normally, the widow would have been Naomi, which is why nothing had been done because she was past the age of childbearing. And while the stories of my people include several where the Lord has miraculously provided, we tend not to put the Lord our God to the test in quite that way. And here's what Ruth was asking me to do. She was offering to be a surrogate for her mother-in-law. She was asking me to purchase the family land of Elimelech And then to marry her in order that we might have between us a child that would not be my son or daughter, but would in fact inherit the land of Elimelech. And the loving kindness that this demonstrated to her mother-in-law left her first in the dust. There were young men who were beginning to line up to marry this young woman. But instead of marrying a young man, someone much closer to her age, instead of marrying a young man to become his wife and the mother of his children, to become someone embedded in the community, she had chosen, once again, to set aside her rights and her desires, leaving her future and legacy for the good of her mother-in-law. And I had the opportunity, once again, though I am no prize, to be part of the reward of God for this act of kindness. How could I say no? So I assured her, I will do everything you ask. Inspired by her love, by her kindness, by her courage, I was willing to do this thing. However. There was a relative who was a little bit nearer to Elimelech than I, who had first right of refusal. And so I told her that I would first approach this man and ask him if he wished to acquire the land and to acquire her. And it wasn't lost on me that her decision meant that she didn't even necessarily get to choose who she married. It could have been the other, the other kinsman as much as it could have been me. Well, she lay down for the remainder of the evening But before it got light, I sent her home with another gift of roast grain for her mother-in-law. It's not really a good thing to let people know that a woman spent the night at the threshing floor, nonetheless. And then I went looking for this other kinsman. And by the time I'd found him and by the time I'd found the town elders and had them seated at the gate, it was mid-morning. But I told him and the elders that the land of Elimelech was for sale. And that you could purchase the land and acquire Ruth as a wife in order to redeem both the land and the line of Elimelech. I said to this man, You are the nearest relative. It is your first right of refusal. And while he was willing to purchase the land, he was not willing to marry Ruth. As he said, it might endanger his own estate. And he was right. While my act of courage was not nearly as significant as Ruth's, it was still a bit of a risk to purchase a block of land at market rates, as so soon after a famine had devastated us, and to hold that land while also acquiring a wife and hopefully acquiring a child and raising that child until he was of age, and then sending that child with the land that you had purchased as a free gift because it was his legally, was a costly exercise. But the difference between this kinsman and myself was not our means or our desire to fulfill the obligations of the law. The difference between he and I was that I had seen Ruth's courage firsthand and he had not. And her courage, her kindness inspired my own. So when he refused, I bought the land and acquired a wife. I have the shoe to prove it. And the Lord has been good. The barley harvest is about to begin again. And the fields are white to harvest. If only I had more workers. And the Lord has enabled Ruth to conceive. And just a few weeks ago, she gave birth to a son. Not my son. Naomi's son. And they've called him Obed. I can only hope that he takes after his birth mother. A woman whose love and courage has inspired me, and I hope you too. Because courage is a little bit contagious. To sow a courageous act, you reap a courageous act. I can only hope that this story inspires more than just myself, her son, and many many others, to live courageous.
0: We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast. An open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.